Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. I'm glad you're here. I am still working my way through our upcoming series. So today's episode is another one of my takes on an old story that I think we're all pretty familiar with, but that might strike you in new ways. This time, this week, it's Noah and the flood. In a minute, I'll read a portion of the story out of Genesis, and then I'll get into sharing my thoughts with you. But I wanted to make sure that I let you know that I've talked with several of you over the past few weeks, and I've heard that you've been telling others about God knows where, and all I can say to you is thank you. Keep doing it. And don't forget to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show and to share this show with your friends in real life and on social media. Thanks for all your support and love. Thanks to Good Faith Media for their support as well. Keep checking them out when you need resources to help guide you through your life as you reflect on your faith and everyday life. Good Faith Media is your place to go. I hope you enjoy today's episode, Goat on a Hill. Summary of Genesis 6 through 9. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. And in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. Then God said to Noah, And to his sons with him, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Parenting makes me feel like a failure a lot of the time. Like I don't have the right words to respond to my children's questions, like I can't give my children what they need all of the time, or I'm constantly afraid that every decision I might make would lead them to need therapy as an adult. Case in point, When Wagner was maybe two years old, he had this book he loved. It was a collection of Margaret Wise Brown's poems, the woman who also wrote Good Night Moon. He loved these poems. His favorite one was called Goat on a Hill. They were all illustrated, and he would ask us to read the book all the time. And there was a CD of the poems put to music that we listened to as well. We were sitting at the kitchen table eating lunch one Saturday with Elizabeth's parents when, out of nowhere, he looks up with a smile on his face and said to me, clear as a bell, go to hell. We don't say that, I told him. And he looked at me confused, and a a few minutes passed, and he looked at me again, and he said, go to hell. We went out into the family room to have a talk about it, and we came back to finish lunch, and 
All the while, four adults were sitting around wondering who was the one that had taught him such language. And he said it again. All right, no more chances, I said to him. I scooped him up and I took him to his room and tears were streaming down his face and he was inconsolable and he would not take a nap. So I left him weeping and I went to clean up the family room and I came upon this book of poems. And it hit me. Goat on a hill. Goat on a hill. He didn't tell me to go to hell. He wasn't condemning me. He wanted me at lunch to read him his favorite poem, Goat on a Hill. But I lashed out at him because I thought he had done something that he wasn't supposed to do. Sadness washed over me and Elizabeth and her parents, and I couldn't take back the reprimands, and I couldn't go back and correct my actions. I couldn't ask him what he was talking about. By being quick to judge, I missed the point. After he came out of his room, I asked him if he was talking about this poem, and he nodded his head. I apologized to him. I apologized profusely. I asked him if he wanted to read the poem again, and he just shook his head. He didn't want to read that poem. He thought it might get him in trouble, but I promised him that I'd ask more questions before I assumed the worst again. I can't help but think of that story when I read about Noah and his ark. It's always fun to look at the picture versions of the flood, all the animals marching their way to the ark to be rescued and, and given the opportunity to continue bringing new life into the world after the flood. But as I got older, something about this story just didn't sit right with me. And I couldn't exactly articulate why until I read Ellen O'Grady's Outside the Ark. She told a story about sitting in Sunday school as a child, listening to Noah's Ark be told to that classroom. The teacher read to the children from a Bible full of pictures, and as she turned the pages, they came upon the scene after the floodwaters had receded, and the picture showed a gleaming, lush landscape in the aftermath of the flood, and O'Grady remembers a boy named Joel asking, where are all the bodies? Uncertain how to respond, the teacher asked what Joel meant. Where are the bodies He said, all the bodies of all the people and the animals that died in the flood. Upset that her pleasant lesson of this beloved biblical tale had been interrupted with such a hard question, she told him that he he was a very rude boy, and she moved on. And that's why I struggle with the flood story. It's full of pain and destruction and grief, and we paper over all that emotion with this whimsical tale of a day on the lake with a bunch of cuddly animal friends. We gloss over the impetus for the story, that God seemingly can't find any way to get us to alter our behavior. So the only path forward is for God to start over. The God we're presented with in the telling of Noah and the flood contradicts the God who saw all of creation and deemed it good. The God who once spoke the universe into being is now at a loss for words. So a deadly flood will just have to do to make things right. And I don't know how we can read this story without asking questions like Joel asked. Why is death a solution? Is God like Thanos? 
What had the animals done wrong? Why didn't Noah speak up for his fellow people? Why, after sparing some from the flood, does Noah go and sacrifice more animals? You know, hard questions. Questions we want to avoid. Questions we don't want to ask about our scriptures. Questions we don't want to ask about God. But O'Grady ends her anecdote about Joel with the line, There's a story behind the story. Sometimes there's a need to look deeper or beyond or behind the text to find the meaning or at least some glint of good news. We don't have to look behind or beyond this story. We just have to read it again. We have to read it closely. Because when we do, we see that we've focused on the wrong parts of this story all along. This isn't a story about animals. This isn't even a story about a flood. It's a story about God. The comedian Hannah Gadsby reminds us, you learn from the part of the story that you focus on. So let's figure out where to focus, where to refocus. The way we often talk and think about God in this story calls us to be merely thankful For God's promise to never do a horrible thing again. To never do a thing that God chose to do because God saw no other options. But it hinders us, looking at it that way hinders us, from looking at how radical God's promise is to God's own self and to the rest of humanity. Look at what the scripture says. Let's read it again. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I think there after the flood, God and Noah were there together and they saw what Joel was asking about. They didn't see the lush green valleys of Hallmark Bibles. They saw bodies. And God, the creator of life, the orator who spoke us into being, doesn't want to see the bodies he's created, the bodies he breathed life into like that ever again. This story isn't supposed to make us revere a God who destroys and rebuilds. That's what every toddler with a pile of Legos does when their tower comes crashing down. This story is supposed to bring us to our knees in awe of a God who is not static or unchanging. Our God doesn't want to dictate from on high. Our God wants to be connected to us, even if that acknowledges having made a mistake and working to make it right. If we let Noah and the flood be a story about a guy on a boat with his family and a bunch of zoo animals, then we miss the real good news that's here. That God realizes what a horrible mistake has been made. What a huge mistake it was to flood the earth and promises never to do it again. To change God's behavior. Don't we want that God Don't we want the I've been there, God, the I will be with you, God? 
the God that says, I want so badly for you to thrive and for us to remain connected that I'll remind myself constantly of the promise I've made to you. Isn't that more beautiful and comforting than the ways we've told it before? I mean, it's really easy to say, that's it, no more chances. We don't talk like that or act like that. Go to your room. It's difficult, though, to live with the consequences of what we say and do in anger and frustration. It's hard to say, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. It wasn't easy for God to look down upon the destroyed creation, and I'm sure a flood of emotions overcame God in the days following the flood. It's clear that they did, as we read on in Genesis. And similar, but on a different scale, it's similar to me looking down at a book of poems and realizing why I'd brought my toddler to tears. Wagner and I picked up another book a while back. Thank goodness he's picked up many, many books between Goat on a Hill and Now. But this book we picked up not too long ago is called The Book of Mistakes. In it, an artist begins drawing a young girl, but one eye ends up being a little bit too big, so she tries to make the other larger. And that one is too big. and So she draws the ground a little too far away from the girl's feet. So she draws roller skates on her feet. She draws an animal that's not quite a cow, but might be a cat, and so she turns it into a bush. At every point along the way, the artist could have wadded up the paper and started all the way over. But she didn't. She tried to fix her mistakes. She didn't give up on what she'd created, and by the end of the book, she's drawn this incredible picture of the girl and all her friends, on their way to a wild party in a treehouse. She found a new story to tell. She gave her drawings another chance. And that promise makes the rest of the story possible. It's the same with Noah and the flood. Without this transformation, without this willingness to take mistakes and fix them, not to get rid of them, We don't get to the promise to Abraham. We don't get to the promises to the Israelites and to David. We don't get to the hope that comes in the form of a tiny baby laid in a manger. Without this transformation, we wouldn't be here today, shining our light and telling our story. To quote Hannah Gadsby again, there are a lot of stories that we tell ourselves that we've set in stone when we were quite young. And they remain with us all our lives. A lot of stories that we tell ourselves are really immature versions of events, but we build so much of our understanding of the world out of it. And I think it's worth rewiring your stories that you set when you were immature. Although this is still a tough story to read, I think I've come around more to the story of Noah and the flood after rewiring it in my brain. And after rewiring it, I can tell you this. I love the God at the heart of this story. I want to follow the God we see here. I'm grateful for the God at the heart of this story because our God is a God of promise, a God who has felt what we feel. 
a God who has made mistakes and then gone and made them right. A God who looks out from the mountaintop and doesn't tell Joel he's a rude boy for asking his questions, but instead puts an arm around him and says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Thanks be to that God. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, and your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.